morning to share God's word. Nothing encourages more than the ability and the and the privilege to share God's word. Uh, it is His word. It is truth. It is powerful. It is sharper than a double-edged sword, bringing conviction to those who hear it. And I take the word of God serious because it has changed my life. And I hope that as I preach God's word this morning, that His word may come to your heart and and bring you closer to Christ. So let us first pray, and then we'll begin our sermon this morning. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift that you've given us to share your word. We are just so blessed to be able to have your word written in our hands, that we can study it and we can read it. We are in a privileged time in history, Father, where before people had a goal somewhere else to read the word, but we have it here in so many different forms and digitally or um, hard copy, Father, and you have given us in translation that we can understand and be able to read, and you've given us the church that helps us to grow in our knowledge, to grow in our love for you through your word, and we ask that as your work is preached this morning, that it is your word that's preached, and that's your word that is being um, proclaimed forth, and that those who hear your word today may not be hearers of the word just, but be doers of the word as well. They may leave here, Father, knowing your word and being encouraged to do your word. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. As I begin my introduction, for my baby boomers, this might be a little bit of nostalgic, but for my younger crowd, this may be something new information to you. So in the 1985 movie, Back to the Future, the main character, Marty McFly, meets an eccentric scientist friend who is named Emmanuel Brown, who he calls Doc. Now, Doc has a vehicle named the De uh, DeLorean, and that is powered by plutonium. And he stole this plutonium from a Libanian terrorist. Now, after Doc inputs a time of 1955, November 5th, in which he first came up with this idea of, of, of a future of a, tra of a traveling car, he gets guns down. And as Marty flees from this terrorist who are killing his friend Doc, he hops in the DeLorean, leaves off, and unfortunately, the car travels fast enough for him to go back to 1955. And in this time, he meets a young Doc and a young mother and his young father. And he's trying to get back, but unfortunately, plutonium was not invented during this time. So Marty reveals to him that there is a lightning bolt that will allow him to have enough energy to go back to 1985. And as he's going about the situation, his young mother falls deeply in love with him and desires to be with him. And as he goes on, tries to get back, he realizes that in his photo, who he has of his siblings, they are, are disappearing. Doc tells him that your current events are impacting your future. So you have to get back. If not, you will not exist. So as he's trying to plot his way back, his mother continues to fall in love with him. And his father, who unfortunately at this time is not a popular guy, he's kind of a nerd and geeky and doesn't have the courage to confess his love to his mother Lorraine. So finally, Marty, come up with an idea. I said, hey, how about if I convince her to come with me to the dance? 
I'll part a scene, I make uh, some advancements, you come in, save the day, and you guys go on in your life. And as Marty is planning to do that, unfortunately, the neighborhood bully, Bliff, gets into the picture and ruins the plan. And he and his friends grab Marty, throw him in the trunk, and unknown to uh, um, George, he comes to the scene and doesn't realize it's Bliff that's there. And he talks to him and says, hey, let go of her. And Bliff, being the bully he is, says, get out of my face. And uh, George, must up the courage, punches Bliff in the face and wins Lorene and they get married and finally Marty gets back to the future and all things as well. Why do I bring up back to the future in a sermon? Well, in a similar fashion, have you have noticed that Peter in this letter seems to go back and into the future. He goes back to in time of history to bring us to the present and then show us the future. And he reminds us of events that took place in the past in history that affected us today. He begins his sermon in verse 1 by telling us that we are elect exiles. Now the word elect means that God has pre-chosen us before the foundations of the world. So Peter's going back in history to explain our salvation. Before you were born, before you even existed, God chose you. He says, according to his foreknowledge, meaning God loved you before you were even born. It's a similar way that when a mother is getting ready to give birth, she loves her child even though the child has not been born yet. God's love for you has always existed, even before you were born. So Peter brings us back and then brings us future with the sanctification of the Spirit. Then he goes on from verse 3 to 9 to give more detail of our salvation. He begins by, Blessed is the God and the Father according to, our, according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to live in hope. This is present Peter speaking. Then he goes to the future, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter now is going to the future to explain what awaits you. Then he goes back again, who is being kept by the power and guarded in faith in the present. So you see Peter is going back to the future, back forward to the future. And now in this next verse where we find ourselves today, he's describing how the gospel came about. So if you have your Bibles with you, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. It will be in verses 10 to 12. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. This is what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that, that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things unto which angels long to look. So Peter begins his text by giving us the first description concerning this salvation. Now, what is the salvation that Peter is referring to? 
he's referring to the salvation that we now are privy to. It is the full and final consummation of the gospel. Peter is talking about now that the gospel that the prophets and people were looking for has now been complete. We are privileged because now we have the full, unmitigated, unmerited gospel for us. We have been given the gospel in its entirety. What the prophets thought was a mystery, what they were looking for, what they were asking about, has now been completed, and now you and I are privy to this. And Peter is writing to his believers at this time saying, the gospel has been fulfilled. It has been preached. Christ has come. He has died. He has risen again. And now we are recipients of that gospel. So what Peter then is, is pointing back and saying, this gospel that which you have now received is what the prophets spoke about. So Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you find life. But if you were to search, you would have found out it spoke about me. We have the gospel. We don't have to add anything to it. It is here. It is now. And that's why we can say today is the day of salvation. Because we have the gospel. And then Peter then goes on to explain how did this gospel come about. Well, first, it was prophesied by the prophets. So this message is not a New Testament thing. The gospel was not invented by the apostles or the church, as some people say. No, the gospel comes from the Old Testament into the New. The fruit of the sea, which is the Old Testament, was the gospel that was preached to us. So he told us that the gospel came from the Old Testament, although not fully understood, but the seeds were there. The flower was budding at that time, and now we're recipients. So in history... So the gospel then came from the Old Testament into the New. As the message went on throughout history, it became more and more clear. And the salvation that Peter was speaking about, that he was referring to, was about a person. The person of Christ. A person was to come down and give us our salvation. Was to take away from our misery. It was to take away from our pain. And how do they know that this gospel was about a person? Well, the first time that you hear a mention of the gospel goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God told Adam, he says, or specifically to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you should bruise, and you should bruise his feet. So after Adam and Eve fell, God needed to save humanity. Man have abandoned their call. They have disobeyed God. Now they're on the wrath and the condemnation of, of God. So then God gives man a hope and says, an offspring, some will say a seed. So already we are hearing that somebody's gonna come to redeem man. And he gives us description. He says, he's going to come, he's going to suffer, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. Now, why is that important? Because Adam, when he was created, was created and put in the garden, 
and one of his tasks was to crush the serpent's head. Because Satan at this time has fallen and has taken on a, 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 um, a serpent's form and then deceived Eve and caused Adam and Eve to disobey God. And he, Adam, was supposed to be the head of the family. It was supposed to crush the serpent's head. But unfortunately, he did not. Instead, he took the bait and ate the fruit. And instead of bringing man into eternal rest to enjoy the tree of life, instead he brought man into misery and sin and judgment. So the message of the gospel is pointing to a salvation, not from Satan, but from God. Because God's wrath was upon man because of their sin. Because God is holy, and therefore he cannot allow people to continue in unrighteousness and unholiness. He must punish sin. So the wrath stood upon man and upon Satan. So therefore, somebody has to come to reverse or to remove that suffering or that wrath. And he's saying that I will provide a seed that would come and remove that. And then Peter then tells us how this message was communicated. It was communicated to the instruments of the prophets. Prophets are divinely appointed messengers of God whose job is to proclaim the word of God and to reveal God's plan for salvation. So as history went on, God chose these instruments to reveal God's will through these prophets. And they were a mouthpiece. They were called to speak God's word. They were called to reveal God's plan for salvation. Because man did not want to receive God. They did not want to know him. They were fleeing. They ran away. So these prophets... Job is not only to bring them back, but to announce that he is coming, that the Christ is coming, that the seed is coming, the offspring is going to be here, and he's going to fix this mess that we created. So what were they announcing? It was interesting that Peter here uses the word grace. He says, who prophesies about the grace that was to be yours. Now, what is grace? Well, grace is undeserved favor, meaning that we're not giving what we owed. This is important because a lot of people think that salvation in the Old Testament was about strictly works, that the Old Testament saints worked their way to get the salvation. But Peter saw here, here that grace was always the way of salvation, that it was not by works, and that Grace was the means of which we would receive our salvation. So instead of receiving punishment, we receive his love and favor. We see this already in the, in, when Adam and Eve fell. Instead of God keeping them in their condition and, and bringing them to hell, because God have every, had God have every right to condemn us, God was perfectly fine in bringing us to hell without any salvation. But God, who is rich in mercy, had grace upon Adam, gave him a new animal, and clothed him with skin, and told him to, to leave the garden because I would bring a seed. So we see grace already instituted in the Old Testament. 
And now we see the grace upon grace, as John tells us, in Jesus Christ. So Adam was already given grace. So this tells us already that our person is going to come, it's going to be by grace, and it's going to be a sacrifice. So we're already seeing the context of salvation being revealed slowly throughout the Old Testament. And now the prophets were looking carefully and searching carefully. Why were they searching carefully? Well, because if you go back to what I said earlier, you notice that in Genesis chapter 3, God killed an animal to clothe them. And for that point on, God's, God's system for salvation was through animals and through sacrifice. That was a system that was used in the Old Testament to bring about or to encourage us to salvation. But the prophets knew that that was not sufficient. They knew that that was not enough to bring about salvation. Look at what Hebrews 10, 4 says. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the prophets knew that the boats, that the, that boats, that the goats and bulls were not sufficient. A human being had to come to save us. So they knew that the system they were using was just a foreshadow, was just a, a, a stopping mark, a bookmark for what was to come ahead. So they searched carefully for the right person who would come in our behalf. So they searched for a man who would come to deliver them from their sins. And here, Peter says they searched diligently. To search diligently implies that they were searching like miners who dig to the bottom and break through not only the earth, but the rock to come to the ore. So they searched carefully. They looked intensely at God's word. They studied the Torah. They studied Moses' writing. The prophets searched carefully to know who was supposed to come. And then what they realized was that this person was going to suffer. And here Peter tells us in verse 10, they searched carefully and quite carefully, quiet at the personal time, at the Spirit of Christ and them who indicated when he predicted the suffering of Christ. So the Spirit was revealing to them who this Christ was going to be and how he was going to accomplish our salvation. So then now they discovered that this person was going to be a savior and a redeemer, but it's also going to be a suffering servant. He was going to suffer in our behalf because that's what Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says. You will bruise his heel, meaning you will cause him to suffer, but he will crush your head and ruin your, and, and, and destroy you with one blow. So the spirit of Christ which is an interesting phrase because this phrase is only used one other time in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. What it's showing is that the Spirit of God was also active in the Old Testament. We assume that the Holy Spirit was only active in the New Testament. But no, the Spirit was already moving in the hearts of the Old Testament prophets, and it was pointing to Christ. So the Holy Spirit's ministry was to show off Christ. And we see this affirmed in the New Testament when John says, in John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, when he says this, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and what he will declare to you, the things that are to come, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit already from the Old Testament was pointing to Christ. He was already showing people who Christ was and what he was going to do. And the Spirit was already active in working the Old Testament saints to bring about the message of the gospel. It was revealing to the Old Testament saints who was supposed to come. And it was speaking of two things about Christ, his suffering and his glory. Now, what does it mean that Christ suffered? And how does Christ suffer for us? There are many things that Christ did for us that he suffered. And I'll quickly give you some examples. First, Christ suffered because he was born under the law. That means that Christ came into a world that was broken, that was full of hate, full of pain, full of suffering, and he was experienced all of that. He experienced rejected, rejection. He experienced pain. He wept for Lazarus' death at his best friend from dying. He was born and came into the condition that he did not create. Remember, when God created everything, he called it very good. And because of our sin, it became very bad. And Christ came into a world full of pain and misery and suffering. And for a while, he, he came to this world to man's disobedience. And what else did he become? He became a servant. Christ left behind all the glories of heaven, all the glories of, of, of angels praising him to be a servant to you and me. He humbled himself. The creator of all things, the creator of you and me, came and humbled and served you. He left behind his position in heaven so that he can serve you and me. In other words, he also became poor so that you and I could become rich. And how far did Christ's obedience went to? To his death. Christ's obedience led him to his death. He obeyed the Father's will, which is what he said. Look what he says in John 6, 38. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what was his will? The Father's will for Christ was the death on a cross. So Christ left behind his position in heaven, came down to this world full of pain and suffering and sorrow and misery, served you and I, became poor, and was led to the death on the cross. A gruesome, humiliating death. A death where he was put to shame. You're talking to me, the God of God, the glorious king, the ruler of the world, who created everything out of nothing, came down and suffered and died openly, shamefully for you and for me? Yes. He did that because he loves you. So the Savior would come and humiliate himself to point to us. Now, this is not a New Testament invention. 
Because the prophets were already talking about this, and we already read this today in our scripture. We see the first time that the, the prophet indicating of a serpent, serpent was in Isaiah 53. Look what it says. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So the Old Testament prophets were already telling us that this servant was going to suffer. And what did the servant bring us? Isaiah continues in, in 35, it brought us our peace. But he was praised for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisements that brought us peace and his wounds, and we were healed by his wounds. So already the Old Testament prophets were telling us that this suffering serpent was going to suffer on our behalf. So what are we hearing? We're hearing biblical theology. We're hearing God revealing his, his, his plan of salvation in time. Where it gives me confidence in the Bible, because the Bible has one simple message. Christ and him crucified. And what you read in the Bible is God's plan unfolding in your life. And when you, when you read the Old Testament, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of what we see in the New. So don't disparage the Old Testament. It is useful. It helps you to understand what you read in the New Testament. And Peter's telling us that these prophets were talking about this. So this message of the gospel was nothing, it was nothing new. It just didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't an invention of the apostles or the, or the early church. No, the gospel was already proclaimed in the Old Testament through kings, prophets, and we're seeing it already unfolding, and we're already seeing the conduct of the message today. So we already were seeing that he suffered. And what else do we see here? Well, the subject glories. Now, many commentaries differ on this, but I believe this is pointing to our future, our glorified bodies, our glorified self, because Christ didn't save us just to keep us here. He saved us because he's bringing us to a new home. As he tells us in John chapter 14, I must leave because I'm preparing a home for you. And if it was not true, I wouldn't tell you this. But I go because where I'm going to go, you're going to come with me. So here, Peter's pointing us to what awaits us in the future. Because one of the tasks of Adam was to bring humanity into eternal rest. If Adam would have defeated Satan, he would have had full access to the tree of life, and we would have enjoyed paradise. But unfortunately, Adam did not do that. Instead, he brought us under the, under the wrath of God, but under the dominion of sin and under the rule of Satan. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the world sits under the power of the air, who rules and, and, and convinces the sons of disobedience to disobey God. So God, so Adam brought us into this condition. And one of my favorite questions, I don't know why I like this question, but it just explains reality so well, which is, what's much a shorter catechism, question 17 says this, and to what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery. What is misery? To be discomfort, to be emotionally stressed, to be under the weight of, of, of pressure. And Christ came to reverse that. So one of the things that we're going to experience 
is freedom from that type of life. But it's only for those who have placed their faith in Christ. So what did Christ do when he came? Well, first, he crushed the serpent's head. In heaven, Satan's not going to be there. He's going to go to his eternal home, which is hell. So Christ came to defeat and crush the serpent's head. That's the first thing that he's going to do before we go to heaven, which he has really done. And the Apostle Paul tells us that Christ has accomplished this task when he says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demand, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Christ triumphed over Satan. He who ruled over us has now been defeated. And this is what John tells us in, in John chapter 3, verse 8, 1 John. The reason the Son of Man, God, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Second thing that Christ is going to do is going to free us from the power and dominion of sin. Look at what Romans chapter 6, verse 4 to 7 says. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united to with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has been dead has been, dead, has been set free from sin. So in heaven, we will be free from the dominion and power of sin. And we'll be free from its attack, from its temptation, from its burdensome, from its heaviness. Sin is heavy. And it's costly. And Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. We are free now from its enticement. But we know as we still live here on this earth, we still sin. We still have a tendency to sin. But in heaven, there will be no more sin because sin will be completely eradicated. And then finally, we will enter the eternal rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 to 11 says this, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may be fouled by the same sort of disobedience. We will enter the eternal rest. As we prepare for Christ's coming, God will give us a new body and enter us into heaven where he dwells. And in heaven, there will be no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. And all things will remain new. And this is the glory that awaits us because of Christ. Christ's death and resurrection brought about that glory for us. He didn't have to give it to us. He was not obligated to do that for us. But God, who is rich in mercy, who loves us, has given us all of this. We didn't ask for this. We didn't say, God, help us. 
But because he loves you and because God is loving and kind, he did this for you. He sent his Christ, Jesus, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish all of this for us. And Christ's death on a cross then brought about our eternal glory. And, and Christ now becomes our aim and our hope. He becomes the way we conform to his image. And the prophets of the Old Testament were realizing that this is nothing that's going to happen to us now, but in the future. They were pointing not to what they were going to receive, but what you and I were going to receive. And Peter, in verse 12 then, is reminded of what we see in verse 12, that this salvation has been accomplished. So the prophets realized that this prophecy will be fulfilled in a distant age. Peter is telling us that the New Testament believers got this full revelation. And this message was given to us, not necessarily by the prophets, but by the New Testament saints, the apostles, the, church, the early church fathers, revealed to us the gospel. They gave to us the message of Christ. And we have now the full message of the gospel. So all that I spoke about has been accomplished on our behalf. And the angels who are waiting said, when would this come? When would this thing be fulfilled? And Peter's telling us it has been fulfilled. So I, I imagine the angels looking back saying, when is this Christ going to come? When is his Savior and Redeemer going to come to save humanity? They were looking and longing to experience that which we have. And the angels were part of that message because the angels who, who are messengers of God waited eager in expectation for the fulfillment of the promise of God throughout scriptures. Angels played a role in announcing the coming of Christ. Look what Hebrews 2.2 2 says. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and in every transgression or disobedience received a just um, retribu retribution. So the angels who were helping to announce the message of the gospel were eagerly awaiting for what we you and I now receive. So what do we hear this? Here, Peter's telling us that the message of the gospel was already proclaimed in the Old Testament and that we can have trust and faith that the Bible that we have has revealed to us God's plan and that the Bible had one simple message, Christ and him crucified. So the Bible stories are not different little stories about this and this. It was pointing to what we have now received in Christ. So put your faith in the Bible because the Bible has given us all that we need. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your message, for your gospel. We thank you that you have given us life, healing through your son, Jesus Christ. Let us wait upon you and let us purify ourselves as we wait for your coming, as we eagerly await for us to bring us to eternal home. In Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue. 
adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.